All right. Well, hello there. Welcome to the Deadly Analysis Podcast. Uh, this is our yearly Halloween episode. Um, did we do a Halloween episode last year? This is our first yearly Halloween episode uh, where we carve out some time to enjoy some good booze, like booze, like ghosts. Yeah. Uh, and talk about things that uh, matter most in life. Jack-o'-lanterns is one. Um, William Shatner masks that were never fully completed. The Black Eyes of the Void before it grips you, you know, and thrusts you into eternity. Uh, it's truly the most wonderful time of the year here at the Deadly Analysis Podcast. So I am here tonight with Ben, with Garrett, and with Jim. And this year, we have a, a sort of a special treat because it's been 40 years since the original Halloween uh, Halloween film. Uh, I was six. I'm sorry. I was minus six when the movie came out. Um, so uh, I, I didn't really watch it until the like on a VHS tape, essentially. Um, it's a VHS tape that sat right above our like big ass Sony CRT television for throughout most of my childhood. And I, I have like this memory in my mind where I could I could see like the side, like a very distinct side of the VHS tape from my room. If I was laying a certain way in bed, I could see and the door was open. I could see all the way down into the living room and I could just see the side, like the Halloween sign on the side of the VHS tape. And I remember like staring at that as I fell asleep as a kid, never actually watching the movie, but just kind of like seeing it as I fell asleep, that very distinct VHS tape sort of never left my memory. And then one day, I'll never forget, uh, I uh, had a babysitter uh, watching me and after playing Nintendo, uh, my parents were out of town doing something, whatever. And um, she pulled out that faded jack-o'-lantern cover with the knife, pulled it off the shelf. And what followed was like sheer terror, basically. Um, and I think what sets Halloween apart for me um, is that to some degree, it, it still terrifies me. So I just finished watching the original um, last week for this podcast again, and uh, and I watched the, the, the recent one. We've all watched the recent one that just came out. Um, but the original consistently is scary to me. It, it's something I can't say about like Child's Play, which I watched again recently, or Freddy or Jason, or like really even super scary shit to me, like Event Horizon. Like the initial jolt of those films have to some extent gone away, like they've lessened, well, I'd say for some, they've lessened pretty significantly over the years, but not Halloween. Um, and to be clear, I'm referring specifically to the first Halloween film, not the, the you know, numerous sequels and Rob zombifications. Um, the sequels are kind of a different story and I, I have kind of a love-hate relationship with some of them, especially the Paul Rudd one. Um, but the first Halloween film is in my mind, like an absolute masterpiece of cinema, period. And I sort of want to use that as a segue to our discussion tonight. So tonight, our aim is really to talk about two films, just two films, the original Halloween 1978 and the sequel that was just released here in 2018. I, I think at some point we might skim some of the other films just by reference or something, but these are really the two movies I want to focus on. Um, so we're going to attempt to treat these two films as uh, though they were made um, you know, like see, like a sequel. The the most recent one was its only sequel, and see where it takes us. So before I open it up to the floor to do that, I I, I want to say a word about Michael Myers, and this may be controversial, and in fact, I know it will be controversial to some of our co-hosts. So if it is, um, fight me, bitch, fight me. So uh, here's the controversial claim: uh, Michael Myers is the superior villain amongst all his slasher brethren, right? Jason Schmason, right? Freddy Spaghetti, Chucky Schmucky, right? Those guys, to me, they lick the boot of the Lovecraftian butcher, Michael Myers. And let me offer a very brief but passionate defense of why I think this. And by superior, I don't mean body count. Like, I, maybe I should define that, right? That award, body count goes to Jason. 
Jason has killed the most of all of the slashers. But by superior, I mean like something like representative of a fear that's more fundamental to the human experience. Like the motivation of Michael Myers is more pure. So like when you look at Michael Myers, you get the distinct impression that you're missing something, right? Not that he's missing something, but that you're missing something. It's, it's like staring into an archetype, right? There's like a blankness. There's like a platonic form of the serial killer in Michael Myers. Colors need to be filled in. Shapes need to be more distinct. We're, we're sort of looking at the darkest places of our own imagination when we look into the face of Michael Myers, and we sort of paint that mask in as we go along. And you know the ambiguity, for example, of Michael Myers' motivation in the original Halloween allows the viewer to fill in the gaps, so to speak. There, there's just a lack of understanding that permeates Michael Myers. And that's a large part of why I think he's so terrifying. I mean, like, think of the way he's described in the first Halloween film, that the children in the film call him the boogeyman. Loomis uh, refers to him for the most part as it. I think Michael Myers is mentioned twice in the entire film, the name Michael Myers. And oddly enough, in the original script, he's just referred to as the shape, right? Um, speaking of shapes, surprise, surprise, that the film Laurie Strode and the kids are all watching on the evening of the attacks in the first film uh, is the thing from another world, which Carpenter would later remake. And then 35 years later, we would all debate about how Lovecraftian it is and get a shitload of dislikes. So anyway, I digress. Uh, and so in the original Halloween, um, there's like no obviously discernible reason for why Michael Myers wants to kill Laurie Strode, other than maybe she like walked by his home, right? Like his desire to end human life from his instantiation as a villain is not attached to traditional rubriced concepts of motivation. So he's not pissed that townsfolk killed him in a fire because he was the town pedophile. He's not looking for revenge on camp counselors for leaving him unattended, and he's not trying to shop for a human body to implant his soul into right? Michael Myers is the idea of murder sans motivation. He, he's the removal of answers. Um, Michael Myers serves, at least to me, as like the most pure avatar for evil because there's an inexplicability about him that I think Carpenter masterfully weaves throughout the original Halloween film. So that's, that's my controversial pitch for the evening. Michael Myers is uh, the king because he's the closest thing to a walking void that we see in horror. Um, so with that said, uh, we've all seen Halloween. We've all watched the sequel that takes place 40 years later. So it's been 40 years since Laurie Strode survived the vicious attack from Michael Myers on Halloween night, 1978. Locked up in an institution, Myers manages to escape when his bus transfer goes horribly wrong. Uh, so Laurie Strode now faces a terrifying showdown when Myers returns to Haddonfield. But this time, she's ready for him. And when I say ready for him, like Sarah fucking Connor ready for him. You know what I mean? So uh, if we assume that these are the only two films, 1978, 2018, what do we think? What do we think? I mean, let's start with like the most recent film particularly. Let's start from there and go backwards. Um, and I, it's hard for me to peg one specific way to jump into this because there's so many ways we could do it. So I'll just ask it like this to anybody who wants to answer first. Like, was it a good film to you? Did it, did it live up to its attempt at being a successful sequel if we assume that all of the other ones after the first one uh, weren't weren't real. What what did you guys think? I'll open up to anybody. I can go ahead and start there. I don't think it's successful as a sequel, if you think of it in that light. So we have to compare both films, the original and the remake, um, to think about it this way. But there are so many continuity errors between the two films that when you pair them up like that, 
it's just it's it's too flawed when you put that framework in your mind to say well we have the original and then 40 years later he comes back um i just it, it's too disruptive the way that you can't just match up between the two the the, the plot points and the dialogue the you know the things that they say in the new one just you can't find those they're not referential in, in, in any meaningful way in a lot of times um to that original film and garrett i see you making a face about this but there are specific points when you hear the new loomis talking to the uh, the police officer who was originally there and the police officer is like well you know i was trying to kill michael but loomis didn't let me when you think about the original film the only person to shoot at michael was loomis and even if you if, even if you consider Halloween two, which could be considered part of the original film because it was kind of like the same night carried over, it's the same thing. In both films, you see Loomis being the one who shoots the gun, who burns him alive, and that storyline just doesn't seem to carry over. Loomis was the one trying to eliminate that evil from the world. Not only that, in both films, you kind of have you know Michael being shot, and yes, he disappears at the end of the first one, and at the end of the second one, he he gets burned alive or whatever. But there is no kind of like bridge, no explanation for how he ends up back in the the institution, locked up again. He, if we're just taking the original film, just kind of disappears into nothingness. Now, I do like that from a symbolic standpoint if you just take the original film. But again, like it just completely ruins the continuity between the two. So no, I don't like it as a sequel. However, I do like it as a standalone film. So, uh, but Why do you like it? What's what are its strengths as a standalone film? Can you can you tell me a little bit more about that part? I got all the like everything else I agree with, but um, tell me a little bit more about why it's why you like it as a standalone film, please. Yeah, no problem. So, if we think about it by itself, I like the new one for a lot of the reasons why I like the original one. Um, you still kind of have that sort of like faceless monster. Um, you know, all the things that Noah talked about, I think that translates well to the new version. Um, in the beginning sequence, you have him standing right there in the middle of this giant courtyard. But at no point do you see his full face. You know, it, it's kind of a, an interesting nod when he turns to the side and you see his damaged eye, which is which is something you can draw continuity to the original film. So that's pretty good. Um, but I, I like the themes there from the from the feminist standpoint. You might get into that a little bit later. I feel like it's really strong from that perspective about how they come together and, and use their collective strength to overcome this, this sort of like <laughs> this male violence, if you want to take it from that perspective. Um, I also like how, I, I mean, just like there's, there's so much there, I think that is good by itself. Um, you know what I mean? Like it, it's, it's really kind of like hard to go through every single point, but if you were just to watch this by itself, I think it's really good. Um, one of the key underlying points, okay, that was what I was going to get to. The reason that I like this for the same reason that I like the original is because of the kind of like the undertones. Um, you know, you have this person or this culture, depending on which film you're looking at, who takes Halloween night to be completely innocuous and harmless. It's just good fun. But underlying that is this mythology of fear. You know, we put on the costumes, we make the jack-o'-lanterns to try and ward away the evil spirits, but that seems to have been lost by either the individuals who are, you know, descendant of Laurie Strode or perhaps just the culture in, culture in general. Nobody seems to remember that foundational fear, and Michael shows up as a way to remind them that there are things to be afraid of, or there are things to be afraid of in the world. Um, anyway, so like a, as an underlying theme, I really do enjoy that. So yeah, I think it does a good job of delivering on that point. 
Uh, Garrett, do you want to jump in? Because I, I feel like I'm going to shit on everybody's parade. <laughs> so I don't want to. I want the parade to go by before I uh, <laughs> before I take a piss all over it. Fair enough. Um, I think, Noah, your, your pitch is a very interesting one. I, I hadn't quite considered it that way before. But I think if we take it seriously, then it, it precisely shows why this sequel and indeed all the sequels were completely unnecessary. They're, they're, if, if what you have is a void, if what you have is nothing, then there's nothing else to tell. You know, it's terrifying when you encounter it for the first time, but there's no more narrative that you can weave into that. And that's part of the reason why all of, you know, many of the other sequels tried to build a mythology around it to, to give it room to breathe, which is an understandable impulse, but it also sort of ruins the very thing which you are saying make, makes it work. You know, when, when it is just this, this emptiness, this nothingness, this incomprehensible killing machine, then yeah, that's terrifying for the, for the precise length of one and a half hours of the first first movie and then anything else after that is just either redundant or destroying the thing which made the first one work and i think that applies to this one too so if we do accept your your pitch noah then i think it it, it spells uh it, it, it's a serious problem for this sequel and for all the sequels um and while i i like your pitch i find it interesting and thought-provoking i'm not entirely sure i'm completely sold on it um Part of, I think, what I liked about this sequel was, uh, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis. I thought that she did a very solid job of sort of anchoring a character which has had some development. Uh, you know, again, we, we are left to imagine what she's, what's happened to her in the last 40 years in a lot of ways. Uh, I thought her performance was solid. It was nice to see her come back to a character, which was her first on-screen uh, uh, debut, as I recall. Um, that was something I enjoyed. Um, I didn't so much enjoy, you know, what felt like the paying homage. And, and, and Ben, this is why I was sort of wrinkling my face as you said there's continuity errors. It seemed to me the problem was there was too much goddamn continuity. They, they, they felt like they had to do the scene where in, in the, um, are, are we spoiling here? Are we Yo, spoiling? we're totally spoiling. Yeah, okay. the bathroom yeah, scene is what comes to like, mind. Oh, yeah, the bathroom scene exactly had to be there. The car scene had to be there. It's like they, they had to hit all these points which felt like, you know, they were, you know, it, 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 every time they did a, a scene that they had done before, they have to kill the babysitter. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it didn't feel like it was a natural extension of storytelling. It felt like they were doing their best to, you know, pay homage to the previous. And, and that's not what I wanted. Uh, you know, I, I wanted, you know, something that was going to, you know, somehow do the impossible of extending the original while at the same time not destroying what made the original interesting. And on the whole, I don't think they pulled it off. I didn't hate it as much as Jim hated it, but on yeah, overall, it was an uh, yet yet another unnecessary sequel. Maybe the best sequel of the sequels, perhaps, but that's really not saying much. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with that. I, I do think this was probably the best sequel of all the sequels. And I, I actually completely agree with you that um, my interpretation makes Halloween two through you know eighty, uh, including the Rob Zombie ones, um, superfluous. I didn't like. I, I just thought they were unnecessary. I think the moment that you midi chlorianize his intentions and his motivations, you ruin everything about Michael Myers. I mean, this is this is um, a fairly common interpretation of why these films were terrible to a large extent. Is the moment you start and not just go through his motivations. You know, the Rob Zombie ones. It, it's a redneck who's beaten. I mean, they're bad motive. They're just shitty stories that don't really explain 
the the depth of Myers in the way that you see him in the original. I don't know. So yeah, I agree with you. I look, I'd have been happy for that hour and a half to be all that Halloween ever was. And I would probably argue that um it, to me it would be a much more successful film. I, I mean Obviously, over the years, maybe it wouldn't have been as iconic. There's so many Halloween films, um, you know, over the years, and it's always been in the horror zeitgeist, yada, yada, yada. But I would have loved to have Halloween just been Halloween and nobody fuck with it ever again. That would have been fantastic. Well, actually, okay, uh, Jim, I do want to get back to you quickly. But, but, but since you mentioned that, Noah, I do yeah. want to put the note, sort of the trivia note, that the odd man out here was Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which had nothing to do with Michael Myers. Yeah. And originally the intention was that they were going to make the franchise into an anthology series where every movie was going to just be a complete standalone thing that was set on or around Halloween. It would be a horror story of some variety. And it would, would have been kind of like American horror story, but you know, for Halloween. And I think if they'd followed through with that, that really could have worked. But the, I guess Halloween 3 didn't do so well at the box office, so they yeah. punted and decided to go back to Michael Myers. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm with you guys with this, with this movie. Um, when I, when I say, so it's hard for me to answer the question, was this second, was this one, this recent one in 2018, was it a successful, that's kind of a loaded question. Even when I ask it, was it a successful sequel? Um, you know, I, I liked parts of it. I hated parts of it. Um, I thought it was the best of all the ones before it, other than the first one. I, I did not like how little Jamie Lee Curtis was in the second one. I thought that the, the plot development with her kid and her grandkid was unnecessary to a large extent. Um, there were a lot of plot contrivances, um, you know, the, uh, classic horror shit that, that um, it's a good example, like the characters get separated from their cell phones. Like shit like that is stuff you just, you know is coming and it was so obvious. Like there were just a lot of problems like that. Like intelligent people acting really stupidly in the film. The whole thing with the doctor and his intention to, you know, the flip that they do in the third act for him to to get into the mind of Michael Myers, kill Michael Myers, whatever. And then he's gone in two seconds. Like that whole thing was just stupid. It was contrived, didn't like it. The comedic sequences in this film were completely out of place. That was my biggest gripe is, you know, you can do, funny sequences in horror, serious horror, but this felt very separated, isolated. The, the scene with the babysitter is a great example. You know, the little kid cracking all these jokes, like, you know, put him, put your boyfriend up there first, he goes in first. It just, it felt very out of, it felt very out of place. I, I didn't find it funny, I thought it was kind of dumb. So yeah, I mean, this second one, uh, I, they could have done it differently. Now, so here's what I, maybe I want to say it's controversial. I think you could, so Garrett, I'm not maybe all the way with you that you couldn't done a sequel and not made it to the same degree of, I don't know, voidness, Lovecraftian, whatever I'm aiming for when I when I speak about the fear of Michael Myers and what's behind the mask. I think you could do a sequel and still exacerbate those same norms, those same fears rather um, in 2018, but it would just be really fucking hard and I'm not entirely sure how it would look, but it certainly seems possible. If you can make one film like that, you can make another. Um, but uh, the moment I think like the biggest downfall is when motivations become a key factor in the in the plot of the film. What is driving Michael Myers answering that as opposed to asking questions? I mean, asking questions in the original Halloween is part of what made it so scary. Answering them takes away that in fear in, that fear entirely. So make a second film where you ask more questions, where more more pertinent things are brought to the table about Michael Myers that aren't entirely answered, but maybe give you a little bit to nibble on 40 years later. I don't know. I feel like it could have been done. It, did, it wasn't done very well in the, in this film. Yeah, I mean, I, I can certainly agree with that, um, that it wasn't done well in this film. Um, I'm going to 
Oh boy. <laughs> I'm about uh I'm about ready to to in incite commentate. And uh, you know, one thing, you know, like we could all disagree politely because I disagree with a lot of what you what you said, Noah. And politely, of course, we'll all hopefully everybody in the comments and in the chat will just be polite in our disagreements. Um, I so, have my ban hammer ready and I have uh, President Trump rhetoric to copy and paste every time you say something I don't like. Oh, so, that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. So Do I get it. to be horse face or is that <laughs> only women? Um, okay, that's fantastic. Uh, okay, so I am gonna, so you talk about the Lovecraftian elements of Michael Myers and to a large extent, I can agree with that that he is a Lovecraftian character who to whom we cannot ascribe motivations and to whom we cannot, uh, there's no reason why he kills uh, Annie, Laurie, and their friend, whose name I forgot. Um, it's, it's true that to some degree we can't do that. But um, I view the original Halloween the same way that several other critics and this, there's sort of a, a long history of this kind of academic research and, and film interpretation that sees these films as 1980s morality plays where uh, those who are sexualized or have sex um, are, you know, uh, uh, targeted for uh, targeted for murder. Um, the Annie, uh, the Michael Myers's first victim in the first film is, uh, she talks about her, uh, sexuality or she talks about, you know, getting pulled into the locker room with a boy. And she, she talks about her, her sex life to some degree. We don't actually get to see that. The only thing we get to see is her, uh, bare back as she changes, changes clothes. Um, the other, the second two murders are, uh, uh, people who have just had sex. Lori um, is a character who is portrayed as virginal and um, there's no sexualization to the Jamie Lee Curtis character in the original uh, in the original film. And so for that reason, while you can you can't make the argument, uh, or while you can make the argument that there is no motivation shown, um, you can decipher based upon the character's actions what his motivation is and it's a misogynistic motivation it's a it's an anti-sexual it's an anti-sex motivation um if we take the hypothesis that uh the only two halloween films that exist are the 78 and the 2018 version then his uh third kill I believe um, is a babysitter in a one shot for no reason. She's not sexualized. She's not she's nothing. She he just likes to kill women. Um, every kill that he has in the 2018 uh, film is either motivated by some utilitarian purpose. He wants his mask back from the crazy uh, psychiatrist, or he wants to kill women. Um, there are a couple reversals in the third act where there's the uh, the male character who goes out there kind of picking a fight with Mike, well, looking for him and on and on. And then once again, then you serves a utilitarian purpose. So I see Michael Myers not just as a character that is Lovecraftian in the sense that his motivation is hidden and blah, 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 but that he works as a 
in a in a specific capacity to uh, to harm and murder women. Um, what is more is the first film concentrates a lot on what I consider to be voyeurism. Um, in the, the first shot of the film, we're put in Michael Myers, young Michael Myers POV. And uh, even in the other shots, when we're watching Lori walk along and, and um, the walk along the street and Lori and her friends, there's, there's a really voyeuristic uh, capacity that the camera, um, that the camera deploys in that first film. Um, and so to my mind, that, that voyeuristic uh, point of view that the, that the, the filmmakers are showing and saying, okay, so what is the thing that's going to excite the audience the most? What is the thing that's going to, to titillate, to uh, titillate, to, to um, provoke and, the death of women is the thing that they they decide upon. Uh, what is more, and so for that reason, I see Michael Myers and these films in a really ethically troubling light, and that's the reason, one of the many reasons that these films don't work for me because it's it's not it's not just Lovecraftian; it's voyeuristic in its misogyny, and uh, that bothers me. And so uh, so. I'll 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 yield the floor for a little bit, Garrett. You've mentioned in the chat that you've got a a challenge for that. I invite it, please. Uh, hopefully, we all can. Hopefully, the, I I haven't clicked over to the chat just yet, so um, I'm about to do so and then uh, watch my uh, rhetorical uh, effigy get lit. Um, so go ahead, Garrett. Okay, so Jim, you know I share your feminist sensibilities, and you know I love look at films through a feminist lens. Uh, so the, the perspective is one I certainly respect. I don't think it's correct here though. I think that the the sort of the anti-sex message that you get from a lot of slasher films is kind of like the Bechdel test. It's not about individual films. It's about patterns across films. You do want to remember that this, you know, was the start of a serious wave throughout the late 70s and early 80s and 80s and 90s even uh, of these sorts of films. And yeah, when you, by the time you get to Friday the 13th Part 10, that pattern is definitely undeniable. And I think the moral for the, for, for the genre is certainly correct. But in 1978, this film was largely unprecedented. And uh, John Carpenter has said explicitly that he had no such intention in mind. Now, yada, yada, death of the author. I understand all that stuff. Exactly what I was going to say. I was going to yeah. death of the author you, right? Right, Go yeah. So, and I appreciate that, too. But again, it's it seems to me that if this film did not kickstart a series of copycats and knockoffs, or if you hadn't seen any of those copycats and knockoffs, if this was the only film that you'd seen, I really don't think you'd draw that more that moral. I don't think you would see this as anti-sex. He kills uh, 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 men as well as women in this in, in the original film. Uh, there is, you know, in the second film, there are the only sequel we're addressing. There's you know, really not much in the way of uh, sort of an anti-sex message in that one. Um, and I think that's in large part because you know they're more cognizant of the, the feminist problems of, of, of that kind of framing. Um, so while, yeah, as, as a problem for the genre, I agree as a problem for this film, I disagree. That's fair. I, I still think that you can't, in order to make a truly Lovecraftian argument, as I think Noah was, was challenging us with at the beginning of this, um, I, you, there shouldn't be a pattern to 
his murders. And and I've dealt I, I've given you one. It's either a utilitarian purpose, he needs a car and somebody else is driving it, so kill that man. Or uh it's a woman. And that's those are the two reasons he kills. Yeah, and so a truly Lovecraftian villain is not going to be able to be reduced into one of those two categories, right? You're right. There's a pattern. The pattern is he kills weak and vulnerable people. Uh, uh, but he he kills several men uh, in the film without any sort of clear utilitarian purpose at all. I mean, you could say that he was in their way or something like that. But I mean, that just doesn't seem to be to be a utilitarian in the sense he doesn't really go after fully grown adults. Um, you know, he doesn't go after, you know, uh, uh, you know, police officers or, or Loomis. Uh, or you know, so what's that? Or babies in the second or baby, one. Yeah, I mean, yes, he's seen it in the, where he grabs the one, the really young kid and lets the really young kid go. So there is a pattern. I will grant you that. And that's potentially a challenge. I'll let Noah address that if he wants to. But the, the pattern isn't he wants to kill women or men for utilitarian reasons. I just, I just don't think that pattern's there. I mean, my, my indictment of that is that he, I don't think the mere fact that there's patterns make doesn't make it Lovecraftian. There's patterns in Lovecraft. I mean, even in it, in the mythos of Lovecraft, there are still patterns. Without patterns, you can't like comprehend or read at all. I mean, it, I, you know, just be I, patterns to me seems to be too um, too broad of a reach for what's considered sort of cosmically ineffable, I think. And that's sort of more what I mean when I when I say Lovecraftian. Um, but I mean, it sounds to me, Jim, like you're, to me, you're confusing the morality of the film with the, with the, the, like the outside world that created the film versus the character within the film. And granted, those are obviously connected. There's a writer, there's people agreeing and disagreeing on the actions of the character. I get all that, but it's more, you're not really indicting Michael Myers in any way. You're indicting the the morality of the film, which is based in a cultural context. I totally get that. We're also looking back, mind you, in 2018, 40 years later at a particular different set of ethics. I mean, you could argue that without these films, the idea of the final girl and maybe even some of the feminist stuff that comes out of having final girls, because I think that's not all bad. Having being the final girl trope is not entirely a bad thing. Um, and I, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I think that that um, you could argue wouldn't be as uh, a, a big of a thing without the original Halloween film, without the Scream Queen herself, without Jamie Lee Curtis. So you know, and I mean the and the the ethics that you're not the ethics the the critique that you're applying really could be applied to horror as an as as a whole as a genre like if if the things that um we're we're looking for the audience to engage with or empathize with or feel connected to or to give us our our, our shits and giggles is um up for grabs as uh, a critique of the characters of the films themselves i think that produces quite a few problems um I, I agree with you that we should question, and we talked about this in our last podcast, that we should think about the morality of what the film is trying to get us to do. Um, what was the last film where we had this conversation? And why am I blanking on this? Oh, um, I saw The Devil. Um, yeah. And I, I, and I, the revenge genre as a whole, yeah. Yeah, and I, and I, I get that. Um, but let's not remember, you know, I'm sorry, let's not forget that Michael Myers, Michael Myers kills a shitload of men. I mean, he he does that in every film. He does it in the first film. He does it in the second film. In fact, I think he, he, I don't have the kill count in front of me, but he may kill more men than women in the most recent film. He kills the hunter, son and, and father, um, the, you know, the doctor, the granddaughter's friend, the dude who tries to hit on the granddaughter, the mechanic who's a male, the gas station attendant, the podcaster. I mean, there's a lot of dudes that die too. Now I get it, right? Like this is where the motivation of, 
the writer and the director come in and um, I, I get what you're saying, but I think we should, we should pepper that with, I mean, if you're gonna critique the character for his killing, I think we should take the context as a whole and look at everyone he kills. So I guess if I could peg my disagreement with what you're saying, it's I don't understand the distinction between talking about Michael Myers as a Lovecraftian character himself within the world of Haddonfield versus how he's written to appeal to an audience by a writer. I get how they're connected, but how that removes the Lovecraftian elements that I've talked about, besides the idea that he has a pattern, which I don't find to be really meaningful. I, I mean, again, pattern is necessary even in Lovecraft. I mean, Shugoth, for example, you can still comprehend with the, you know, that it's a shapeshifter and parts of that still may be unknown, but there's still patterns in shapeshifting. They're gonna shapeshift uh, to, become a certain being, a certain entity for a certain purpose. Like there's still levels of understanding even in, in Lovecraftian horror, in Lovecraftian villains. So I guess maybe we need to buckle down on what maybe it means to, to be truly Lovecraftian. Cause I don't sure. think the mere fact that there's a pattern is, um, is, is sufficient. So that's maybe my first, my main critique with what you had to say. Sure. Yeah. And that's fair. Um, and, and I think like, I, I, ascribing a motivation to I, the 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 thing that I was responding to that you had said was that we can't really subscribe a motivation to Michael Myers, and then therefore that made the character Lovecraftian. That's what I thought I heard you say. Yeah. Is that is that a a bad reading of your? No, that's a, that's exactly what I said. But I I think the difference okay. is. When I say ascribe a motive, I'm within Haddonfield already. If, of course you can ascribe a motive if you're talking beyond Haddonfield and you're bringing in the idea of writers, directors, producers, film. If you're talking about sure. film, I'm with you, but so does that make sense? So if you're in Haddonfield and you're and you're thinking about who Michael Myers is within the within the narrative, right? If you're not deadpooling, <laughs> you know, and talking about the writer. Um, then I think he becomes incredibly Lovecraftian. But you couldn't be Lovecraftian if you ever talked about the writer or director. Like, there, there. How, how could anything be Lovecraftian if you go that far back? If you go that far back. Well, we can get. I mean, this isn't a, a, a podcast on Event Horizon. We already did that, or you guys already did that. Um, I would say Event Horizon's a little bit more Lovecraftian. But okay, I, I mean, I'll take that. I'll take that point. Um, None, and and I think one of the things that these two, that you and 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 Garrett are are conflating, is my argument about the character, which I actually do admit is to some degree Lovecraftian. That there's to some degree some lack of motivation ascribed to it. And then my second argument was about the the filmmaking is voyeuristic, and then that's why we get sort of these these deaths of w women. And I was trying to connect those two points to sure. some degree, um, although I I was also trying to separate that. Like there was a Venn diagram that met in a little point. Um, well, can I, can I jump on the voyeuristic part? Because to me, I, mean, I, I actually mentioned this before we, we started the podcast that, you know, I'd watched the original film recently, and that was what caught me as as uh, just sort of different from the the first couple times I watched it, is how much stalking Michael Myers does in the original film. I mean, he kills a lot, but my God, every other scene is him looking and watching, and that wigged me out this last time around. I didn't realize the, the degree to which that's done, and so you know, I, I maybe I'm just not morally insightful with my own ethics when I watch a horror film, but I I enjoyed it 
precisely because it scared me. It scared me to death to think that, well, I mean, it scared me on multiple levels that here's a here's a being who could just rip my head off, but chooses to watch a little bit. So there's that. Um, and I mean, I don't know. Do we want to say that Michael Myers would have done would not have done the same thing if it wasn't a dude who crossed his path? I mean, can we even answer that? I mean, I I don't think that there's anything specific that says within Haddonfield, within the narrative, that if a man had not crossed Michael Myers' path, he wouldn't have done the exact same thing to that person. Um, but this is me living in in the world of Haddonfield and critiquing it, it, it that way as opposed to it's 1980s, there's a writer, a particular set of tropes that have, you know, um, impinged on the genre. I get all that, but... Um, I don't know. I, does, that, does any of that make sense? I don't know. Yeah, I don't think that um, whenever I watched either one of the films, really, that there's any evidence that he treated the two genders differently, depending on the situation, of course. Um, you know, it, in all situations, of course, like we do have kind of like that coherence that's, I think, there mostly just to carry the plot forward um, because you need that kind of structure. But when you think about the way that he's killing each of the victims, there does seem to be this element of him doing it slowly. You know, he's watching the people. He's you know kind of stalking them a little bit. He's scaring them first. He doesn't just come up behind them and you know cut their throat really quickly with his knife and end it immediately. You know he's making sure that they're terrified before he does it for both men and women, right? Or at least in, in my perception, I might be misremembering that, but I don't think so. Um, but just to go back to the voyeuristic thing for a second, just to throw an extra point out there, um, if anyone wants to comment on either of these things that I'm going to say. Um, I'm not sure what it would look like to make a film that wasn't voyeuristic. Cause I think that's kind of the whole point. Yes. Yes. That's like almost every film. I mean, I mean, that's sort of a, a ongoing uh, question in film studies about uh, how every film is to some degree voyeuristic. Um, that's, and I think the, some of the classic film directors were really interested in, in deconstructing their own voyeurism. Hitchcock does that uh, fantastically in Rear Window, and I think Carpenter does that here as well. So I, I think you're absolutely right there. Every film is to some degree voyeuristic. Uh, the question is, is how is how are those tools used? And then how, or how is that voyeuristic, how is that voyeurism um, enacted within the the frame and within the the subject of the film and that's where some of these ethical questions about um using voyeurism ethically is is where some feminist film studies come into play um so I, okay. i'm sorry to interrupt you there ben i just no that's fantastic thank you um you know that that makes a lot of sense too and so i, I would definitely say that in these cases, I, I can see the arguments um, for your side of that, where you know it, maybe there was some misuse of that, perhaps. Um, but perhaps on the other hand, um, it might have just been used to to set the tone of tension. I think that John Carpenter John Carpenter does so well at setting both through the music and through the uh, the filmography, right? Like just those scenes where you do see him looking through a window or see his reflection or see him fading in from a darkened doorway. You know, I just I I think that that was the primary motivation from the directorial standpoint was just because it's so good a tool at building the kind of tension that we wanted to emphasize in this movie, from my opinion. So I want to echo, yes, something I think which does does not get enough praise, even though it gets a lot of praise. Yeah, John Carpenter's score for this film is iconic and amazing. Every single time I hear those notes, that 10-8 rhythm, it just it sends chills up my spine. You know, it, it's never failed. 
I love it. It's fantastic. I did like the sort of the minor variations that they played on it in the new version too. I thought that was that, that was pretty sweet. Um, so yeah, it's a simple tune, but God damn, if it isn't eerie, I mean, it, it's up there. I mean, for like with the Jaws theme and the Star Wars theme in terms of some of the best, uh, compositions for film, uh, in history, uh, it, it sets the tone absolutely perfectly. Um, so yeah, I was, uh, just so that I could say something good about this film. I agree. I love the music. Uh, yes. so that way, that way it's an, uh, that way it sort of seems like I'm being even, um, <laughs> So, um, but if we are going to sort of start to sort of, you know, deconstruct motivations and stuff like that, some, a problem that I have basically always had with this film, although I, it's, it's become more of a problem as I've gotten older. Um, if, if it's supposed to be that Michael Myers has been mute, he hasn't uttered a word. Why is it that Loomis knows he's going to go back to Haddonfield? I mean, how is it that has his psychiatrist, this is something that Loomis has figured out. And for that matter, why does Michael Myers go back to Haddonfield? I mean, that th this is this is obviously something about his motivation. Now, again, the later films tried to tack on that you know he was trying to kill off all his sisters, and then they they made this stupid ad hoc thing, which they you know hung a lantern on in the most recent one about how Laurie was his long lost sister. Uh, which you know, again, if that had been the idea from the start, there would have you know it would have made a certain degree of sense, but also would have spoiled this sort of mystique that you're that you're talking about, Noah. But nonetheless, it, it does seem like he has to have a, he should have some sort of reason for going back to Haddonfield, and we're never really offered any explanation for what well, that so is. Well, that's that's right there. That's the key, right? So, and this echoes something that I wanted to respond to Jim. Jim said something. So it's not that there's no answer; it's that we're not equipped to know that answer. That's what makes this so. That's what makes this so good to me. You're probably right. There's got to be some motivation. I mean, you could say that about a lot of other things in the original Halloween. There's got to be an answer, right? There's there's got to be some reason why he's doing that. But it, to answer that question is, I mean, to do that, it, you're sort of fucked because if you answer it, you're no longer the appeal for Myers is gone. So is it an indictment? Like, is he so out there and so blank? that um, asking the question, like going back to Haddonfield, is that um, is that too much of the opposite of what makes Myers so great, essentially? But there's a simple fix for that. And that is that you don't institutionalize him a long way away. You institutionalize him in Haddonfield. He breaks From out directors. and then he just yeah. starts yeah. killing. I mean, that to me would be the, the simple fix. Now, granted, it's a coincidence that he happens to live in a town that has a, 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 a an asylum like that. But I can e much more easily buy that coincidence than that there is this you know, unspoken motive that we're in, unequipped to know. I mean, again, I see why the writers of the later films tried to retcon it to make Laurie be the sister, because that is the sort of an obvious reason that would make sense for him to, to, to go back to Haddonfield. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that the more reason you try to give to Myers, the more you declaw him, you know what I mean? Like just, and it doesn't make your questions less rational or, or important, or maybe something that would be interesting. Right. But it's interesting that even though my brain goes in all of the directions to try and answer it, I feel like anything I offer you or anything anyone would offer you, and we see this in the sequels would declaw Michael to a certain degree. Do you know what I mean? Which that's what I like about this. That's, that's kind of, I, that's, it's the perfect balance. It's the perfect set of ingredients for the dish to, I mean, I, I think they did it pretty well, like a answering certain things and then not answering others. But yeah, you're right. I mean, maybe we could argue something like this. Look, the fact that he goes back to Haddonfield is a human, is a very human thing. It's a human motivation. It's, it's actually 
the denial of that thing that's cosmic and other when you look at Myers's face. It's something that's particularly human, familiarity, right? We had this problem with Event Horizon, actually. We had this exact same issue with Event Horizon. So yeah, I mean, these are interesting questions. Um, I mean, there's, there's one thing I think that I can offer um, <laughs> on that note where we can't offer anything without making it worse. Um, there was one scene in particular in the original film, I think it was, where Michael, uh, the shape, you know, whatever we want to call him, after he puts on the mask, takes the tombstone of his sister and puts it in that bed and kind of like surrounds it with, with jack-o'-lanterns or something like that. So, I mean, I if, if you were to ascribe any kind of motivation or tie to Haddonfield, it's got to be that first kill, his, his sister. It has to be something to do with that. In the second film, you see that too, where he does return to her grave. And that seems to be the very first thing that he does. Yeah, and then lugs the gravestone back so that he could set up his his little tableau in the bedroom. And yeah, um, which I kind of want to see the uh, a sequel from Michael Myers, just a retelling of this only from Michael Myers's point of view where he first learns how to drive, which is not a question I would have had, uh, but they hung a lantern on it in the 78 film where it's like, well, how did Michael learn to drive? And then Loomis says, he took lessons from somebody here in the, the like, what? Okay. Wait, anyway. Wait, you understand he was, he wasn't being serious when he said that. I understand. Okay. Yeah, I understand. But, but the fact that they brought that up in and of itself, like I would never have thought, oh yeah, Michael never learned to drive and suddenly he's driving 350 miles. What's going on here? Um, I wouldn't have thought about that unless they had taught, they had that conversation. Yeah, Myers um, can drive stick as far as I yeah. know. Yeah. And he gets pissed off when people get uh, angry at his driving. Um, so so someone, someone in the chat asked something interesting. So About the dog, yeah. Yeah, Myers killing the dog. So M Michael Myers kills, is Myers killing of, of a dog or dogs, plural, is it a sign of his indiscriminate killing or is it is it utility because they're barking and they need to shut the fuck up? Well, it fits my, I, I mean, I'm the naysayer of this film, um, so it does fit my kind of utility argument where the dog is making a, making a noise and so he kills the dog to make it stop making noise. Uh, it, it, it works fairly logically in that sense. Um, that said, I, uh, I, I leave it to, uh, the rest of you to, to talk about it as a, as it, as how it fits the Lovecraftian argument that you're proffering. So. Yeah, no, I don't think it does. I think it's purely utility. So that's the key, right? Like we don't want to say that Myers acts entirely from some inexplicable motivation. I mean, obviously he does certain things so that he can make the next kill so that he can get the knife, put the mask on. That's what's so complex about this, right? If it was just indiscriminate killing, there would be, Jim, no pattern, right? There is a, there is patterns to, to Myers, um, and some of it would include utility, like just making it to the next kill, uh, not getting caught, um, not getting stabbed or shot, hiding in the dark, hides in the dark a lot. Why would he do that as opposed to putting a flashlight on him, going, you know, walking around like this? trying not to get caught, right? So I think it's it's a little more complex than maybe just a pure sort of Lovecraftian nightmare. I think we need to we need to attach him to his human body a little more. Maybe I should have done that in the beginning. But well, um, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I mean, just to like, I, and I don't want to harp on my anti-Halloween um, uh, sentiments too much, but I, I guess once we st strip away all the utilitarian deaths, which include men, 
um, which which often include men. In fact, men, men comprise the uh, 100% of the util what I would call utilitarian kills, uh, with the exception of the jerky boyfriend um, in 2018. If we take away all the utilitarian kills, the only ones that are left for, um, the only kills that are left are murders of women. Is that that's, true? That's interesting. That's so that, that's an that's an interesting thing to think about. I, I I want someone in the chat to think of a male kill that's not utilitarian to some degree. Because I think you're right, but I'm trying to think of one that. No, it seems to me there's there's plenty. I, I mean, okay, go go go. Go, I, go ahead. All of the men male kills are are not utilitarian. I mean, he, he, the the boyfriend that he stat, st sticks to the wall, both in the original and the 2018. Neither of those were utilitarian. You know, he, he, he could have easily gotten around them. He could have knocked them out. He could have ignored them entirely. They would have ran away. They, you know, they, they were no threat to him. Man me, with a gun is, is arguably a threat to him. Well, boyfriend walking around naked, semi-naked in the kitchen isn't a threat to him. He kills him because he can. Let me, you're right. Let me rephrase. Um, who engaged in sexual activity with a woman, if you straight, all the men who he kills if you strip away the utilitarian kills, are the ones who either engaged in sex or are women. It that's sounds like the, you're p-hacking the... this thing now, Jim. <laughs> no, I'm not. I, the, the data set is not large enough to, 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 to be carved up in, in, in that much of a way. I mean, again, if you, if you looked at the, the slasher genre as a whole, I don't doubt that a pattern like that could certainly be found. But in, in, in just either the first Halloween movie or this one and the sequel, you, you, there aren't enough kills to draw that kind of pattern. Okay. Um, I, yeah, I mean, my original thesis was about how the, the kills for not utilitarian purposes revolved around sex and how it became a, a, a 1980s morality play um, in 1978. And it indeed... All of the things you're saying are right about how it started this trend of final girls and uh, death of women who've had sex and then blah, 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 blah. Like, you're right about, I, I think the comparison of uh, my theory to the Bechdel test, I think that's a fair one. And it's a fair sort of uh, knock against my point. I'm just trying to, like, when I say that there are, that I see a pattern here, you know, I'm trying to tell you what that pattern is um whether or not that's if somebody wants to uh if, if i'm mistaken i'd be happy to um look without these tropes, go back and revise without these tropes right we wouldn't have randy from scream like his instantiation in horrors precisely because of these because of these tropes so for that reason right. i'm glad they happened glad they happened um so but I do want to use this as maybe an opportunity to segue because the final girls thing is interesting because I mean, let's, and let's include Jim's notion of the morality play and sort of what's going on in the original film. I made the argument that um, it's not all bad because it produced this weird trope that has sort of turned around on its head in 2018. At least Jamie Lee Curtis seems to think so when she talks about the 2018 film. So, I mean, if we could, if we could maybe sum up, a particular way to look at the 2018 film that's interesting, it would be like, what's next for the final girl? After the final girl survives, the monster killing all her friends and she's the last one standing, what comes after that? Asking that question assumes that there needs to be a final girl to begin with, 
And that's sort of the thing you're indicting. So it's interesting that this comes back in 2018 as an interesting morality play or a question, a, a question of morality in and of itself. So Jamie Lee Curtis, for example, finds it an incredibly important question to ask, you know, what comes next for the final girl? That it's, it's actually a powerful question from the perspective of a woman, um, a woman who's endured all this, all this trauma and tragedy. And uh, John Carpenter seems to think so as well. Um, I have some quotes here. I'll, I'll maybe throw them out a little later. But I mean, so let's connect these things, right? So the final girl trope leads to a sense of empowerment, at least for Jamie Lee Curtis. What, what do we want to think of that? I, I have I've kind of mixed feelings on this. Um, you know, I, I know I, I read somewhere that the last scene that Jamie Lee Curtis did in the 2018 film, the cast and crew, uh, the, some of the people that were doing the filming as well, had a, like a, a not a button, but a, uh, one of those name tag signs. And on it, on her last day, they surprised her and it said, we're all Laurie Strode. So they actually put that on during her last scene, which is obviously representative of something. So do we want to say that there's a degree of empowerment here for women? I really wish Shayra was here to answer this since we're just a bunch of, of dudes dongling our penises everywhere. But like, do we want to say that there's a degree of empowerment here from that perspective, from the perspective of a final girl? I, I kind of... Sure. Um, I yeah, I, I think there is that interpretation, but in this film in particular, if we can get a little bit more specific, I think the message is a little bit different. So one of the most interesting things, and perhaps the only interesting thing that the the new um, Loomis said was that he was interested really in, in not like the the motivation I think of like the original killing of Michael Myers or something like that, something to the effect that what he was truly interested in was what that act of, of killing does to the killer. And I think that was kind of like his motivation for maybe trying to let Michael go, something like that. So there was this message and like this little undertone where obviously this act of, of becoming this violent monster, like engaging in the act of murder or taking life, whatever it was, leaves this impact on you that you carry with you and, and changes you in some fundamental way. And I think that is really sort of the core of the Laurie Strode character in the new film. So she had this experience when she was younger. She came out of it and it shaped her entire psychology. She went into this whole like survivalism kind of thing. She built her home around this idea that something was going to come and attack her. She passed that trauma down to her daughter and eventually to her granddaughter. And so I really don't see it as being kind of like she went through this horrible experience and came out of it stronger. She went into this horrible experience and came out traumatized, scarred. And in a Nietzschean sense, sort of passed down this, this tendency of fighting a monster, thus sort of becoming, in a sense, a monster. And the, the one thing I really want to tie between the two films here is that at the very beginning of the first film, you see that act of, of Michael Myers, like as a child, putting on the mask. He takes the knife. He kills his sister. He looks at the mask. And he's standing outside in front of the house, holding this giant knife out beside of him. And that's exactly how you see the new film end where uh, Laurie Strode's granddaughter in the back of the truck, and I forget the names here, she's holding that knife down to her side, and that's what you focus on as, the, as, it, as it cuts away. So I really think it's just about passing trauma and not necessarily about empowerment. Yeah, I, uh, oh, go ahead, the character name. The character name is Allison, and she's played by Addie Matichak. So that's so I, I do want to say that um like i so i put it in my notes and it's somewhat similar to what ben is saying here that um 
you know, the first film it is like about survival, whereas the second film is about trauma, like sort of post-trauma, let's say. Um, but this is interesting because so let me read you a quote from Jamie Lee Curtis. This is what she said about the 2018 film. She said, um, uh, women and men all over the world are starting to stand up and say, uh, this happened to me, but it does not have to be the definition of me. So she's commenting on like the trauma of violence and particularly I would assume male violence. Um, but, uh, you know, being a victim of violence um, and that it, it doesn't have to be the definition of you. But doesn't this seem kind of antithetical to who she is in the film? I mean, it totally defined her in this movie. She went full Sarah Connor for a reason. It, it seems pretty clear that that the the whole thing that, the whole premise of what happened to her in Halloween created her, fucked up her and her family in the way that's really obvious in the movie. So I don't know, Jamie Lee Curtis, should we really buy that? Um, I, I don't think I do. So, uh, I gotta say, you guys are giving me a lot of food for thought here. Uh, it's interesting because I sort of came at it from the other direction. W going into the new movie, one of the concerns I had was, you know, I imagined Jamie Lee Curtis creating this fortress out of fear that uh, one of these days Michael Myers would get free and come after her. And and I didn't like that because that didn't make no sense because it, it seems to me that if you're afraid that Michael Myers is going to come after you, you just leave the fucking country, you know, just, just get really far away because Michael Myers isn't getting on a plane. He's not going to drive to Australia. So if you really are afraid of Michael Myers breaking out, then you just leave and that solves that problem. And so why wouldn't the character do that? And I think the film rather artfully found a way around that problem. They, they, her thinking wasn't just that Michael Myers is going to come for her. In as much as she, uh, she was thinking that, she was preparing herself to actually to hunt him in some ways, not just to sit, sit around waiting for him. She was hoping for it. Yeah, but uh, but also, and then also she's uh, preparing her daughter and her granddaughter, not just for Michael Myers, but for the idea that the world is a violent, incomprehensible place and you need to arm yourself against it. And I thought that was an interesting way of getting around the problem that I had in my head going into it. Uh, so from that's the perspective in which I viewed it. So I didn't quite catch the, the 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 perspective that you guys are now making me think about, which is making me sort of revise. So again, I was thinking about it from the perspective of a writer of how you get around that problem. And I think that is the way you get around the problem that I came up with, but it also runs headlong into this problem that you guys are drawing my attention to. So, so credit to you guys for making me rethink it. I mean, can can we just stop and consider Michael Myers going through TSA <laughs> and how awesome that would be where he has to like check his bags and then they're like, take off your shoes and he looks at them like, can we, uh, that would be a movie that I want to see um, if, if they actually made good parody uh, comedies these days, I want to see Michael, a guy in a Michael Myers costume have to take his shoes off at the gate. Uh, that would be hilarious. Um, yeah. Okay. So, this this I I I see the problem you're bringing up, Garrett, and I I didn't have the same fear partially because I had to watch the trailer, and in the trailer is like I was hoping she'd he'd get out so I could kill him. Um, if I could defend, J I mostly I agree with with you, Noah, and you you Ben. Um, but I if I could defend Jamie Lee Curtis's statement a little bit, I think the statement is that as a result of this horrible experience, yes, she's been traumatized, but she's she's stronger now to the point where she is not the victim. She's the one who's got the gun and who's going, who's well prepared and set up the, uh, the house so that it's kind of a Rube Goldberg contraption. Um, they've done, she has, she's come out of this militant 
to essentially say no man is going to hurt me again because I have a well-stocked armory and I have become Sarah Connor. Um, Sarah Connor also, to some degree, a final girl herself in 1984. Um, so, yeah, I, I defending Jamie Lee Curtis's statement, I think it's just a she is deploying a version of strength that is not based upon fear, but is based upon aggression, um, which is a version of strength that a person could agree with. Um, yeah. So uh, that's it. One other thing I think I'd, I want to, I want to call attention to here that I, I found particularly, particularly interesting, probably my favorite scene in the new movie was when Lori is fighting him in that dark room upstairs with the with the dummies or whatever. He pops out, they struggle, and then she falls out the window and is there on the ground. He sees her, looks away, and then looks back, and she's gone. And I think that's so so telling of the entire like kind of like the the reasoning that I, I I'm trying to communicate. Um, you know, obviously that's how the first movie ended was that exact same scene with Michael Myers disappearing. And they might have done that just to for for maybe comedic effect. Actually, when I was in the theater. There were a couple people who laughed at that, you know, that, that little bit of music that heard like this. It was beautiful. I know, it was very good. But I, I think really the symbolic value of that is just to show that she herself has become the hunter, the predator, and in another sense, the monster that has taken away power and, and become Michael Myers in order to fight Michael Myers. So, yes, you know, there, there might be construed or like perceived as or argued for as a sense of uh, a type of strength. But I think it kind of goes off the other side too, where you kind of become that predator kind of like victimizer. Um, anyway, maybe I'm just really obsessed with the, the Nietzschean idea. I no, I, I, you're, you're totally right, especially with that scene, because I mean, what's doing the work in that scene, think of the original, is the confusion one has when they look down and see Myers isn't there. That is, that pr there, is a, there is a discrepancy between the per Jamie Lee Curtis looking down, or Luma, I forget who actually does look, it's probably Jamie Lee Curtis, looking down and see, seeing nothing and going, I don't understand. That, that's what's happening in that scene. You, a viewer, and the character looking down going, that shouldn't be the case. A, a normal person should still be lying on the ground. And so now in 2018, Myers has, to some extent, have to be in that particular seat as the one looking down and seeing Jamie Lee Curtis. It's a reversal of power. So it's very Nietzschean in that sense. Um, and I, I think that that's a really good point. On the flip side though, and I don't want, I, I'm hoping this isn't gonna be as provocative as it may sound, but is it really a victory if you go so far the other direction? I mean, maybe the victory is apathy. Maybe that's the maybe that's becoming the victor. You know, I I, I don't the know. victory is happiness. Sure, that, but she doesn't have that, man. Right. I mean, she I doesn't. Think. No, I I mean, I I I tend to agree with you. Yeah. Uh, what I was trying to do is take the point of view of Jamie Lee Curtis uh, as an actress, who of course I don't know. Um, but I I think her sentiment might have weight with some women who've been victimized. I don't know, of course. I'm a dude who's talking about feminism on the internet. Um, and so I, I, I mean, there's certainly, a, but what I was trying to articulate was a way in which Jamie Lee Curtis could be right. Uh, generally, I agree with you that the, uh, the, the true victory would be to be happy, to not have to uh, have a well-stocked armory in your, in your uh, basement. Uh, to not be preparing for the day that Michael Myers is going to get out and try and kill you again, to um, live your life fulfilling and 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 pleased about your station in the world. Uh, 
I so yeah, I mean, essentially, I agree with you, but I think that um, if I can play two sides of the argument, Jamie Lee Curtis has a point too, possibly um, that that a form of aggression is a form of victory uh, for for her. Yeah, I, I think Buffy the Vampire Slayer did it better. I mean, you know, if if you really want to talk about sort of turning, reversing those tropes, you know, uh, Joss Whedon, I think, sort of was the master of that. This one, it doesn't really feel that way. I mean, it feels like it's kind of what you had to do, given that the film was going to be made. And, you know, I, I sort of keep coming back to this pattern that given the film was going to be made, they're maybe you're doing it the best way they could. But why should the film have been made in the first place? You know, uh, if you accept the premise that it's going to be made, yeah, it's, it's probably doing it about as good, uh, if not better, than than any other way I could imagine it. But yeah, it didn't need to be made. It just didn't. Well, maybe maybe well, one hundred and twenty-six million dollars. <laughs> yes, <laughs> with you <laughs> over two weeks, one hundred and twenty-six million dollars on a ten million dollar budget says, "Oh yeah, we needed to make this motherfucker, and we're going to make another one." And can we say that, uh, is it, was anyone else surprised to see Danny McBride in the writing credits? I mean, that just surprised me. I, I'm angry. I'm angry with him because he had commented somewhere that there would be no humor in this movie. He said that explicitly, that he's going to write this film with no humor. You lying son of a bitch, Danny. You liar. So anyway, that just angered me because there was humor. In fairness to him, maybe. He also said there would only be one Infinity War film. So let's, you know, come on. Yeah, in fairness, he might have written it without any humor, and then maybe some producer went back and insisted there was humor or test screenings or something like that. Yeah. You know, the, the, the screenwriters have very little power when it comes to the finished product of a film. So McBride might not have been lying when he said that. Hey, so going, just to tie up the final girl stuff, maybe, I was going to say, maybe the... Maybe the the answer is a little more simplistic. Like maybe just asking the question, "What's next for the final girl?" is a kind of victory in horror films, right? It it at least gives Laurie Strode it gives it gives women an a sense of agency that it just doesn't end that the next day we don't have to wonder what they're doing that we get an answer to that. It gives them a sense of agency. I mean, we could we could say that this film is like um, something like you know, living with Michael Myers after he's locked up. There's analogs to violence, to abuse, to, to those sorts of things. Like maybe the fact that that's something we're talking about is the victory. I mean, I obviously I think if we drill down into the specifics of this movie, um, it, it ends up not looking too much like a victory, at least to most of us here. But I mean, maybe asking the questions of victory, maybe we've moved that far, the fact that we moved that far in 40 years, um, is is a kind of victory. So here I'm I'm because I, I gotta be really careful making the distinction between what happens in Haddonfield and the film. Since I indicted Jim for being sloppy with that distinction, I need to be very clear with it. You know, maybe that's a victory outside of the movie to some degree. A, a Jamie Lee Curtis sort of victory. I don't know. Yeah, I think also, is there a dog in the background that Michael Myers is killing currently, Noah? Yeah, I know. I was like, I gotta go see what's going on here. Uh if I'm not I'll be right back. <laughs> oh no, he's gone. Uh, um, okay, good. so no, uh, I think there are ways in which you, if you really wanted to do a more sort of feminist first version of a slasher film, that you could have done it. Uh, this one didn't quite succeed. But if I take off my sort of feminist hat for a moment and put on my writer's hat for a moment, I am reminded that I, one of the the crappier sequels, I can't remember if it was the fifth or the sixth one, did something that I think was pretty interesting about what happens to the final girl. And the final girl in that one was Laurie Strode's daughter. Um, and you know she's being hunted constantly by Michael Myers. Michael, his, his new motivation is to kill kill his niece now. And then at the end of that film, she puts on the mask and becomes the killer. You know, and 
Right. It, 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 in a certain sense, it's kind of, you know, perhaps tired, perhaps it's sort of obvious, but it, it is something else you can do. You know, you can sort of take that reversal. You don't make them the, the traumatized survivor. You, you know, you, you, you make them the next cycle in, in the, in the, of, uh, in the cycle of violence, which, you know, I'm not necessarily praising that as a writing choice, but it's at least a, an, an interesting direction in which you can take it. So maybe a sequel in which, you know, Laurie Strode becomes the a serial killer herself. I mean, again, I'm not saying I would advocate for that, but, you know, if, no. if I were in a writer's room and we were brainstorming ideas, I'd put it out there. I always, I always like the idea of the doctor becoming Michael Myers, which they played with in 2018. In the 2018 version, he gets hit by a car and then the doctor puts on the mask. And I'm like, oh, the third act is going to be killing the doctor. Uh, but no, of course not. Doesn't happen. Go ahead, Noah. You were going to say. I was just going to say that uh, flip of, you know, the protagonist becoming the killer was always something I thought about in Scream. I'd love to see in Scream. Just the, the which is another slasher, right? So, um, you know, Sidney Prescott has had how many fucking films where Ghostface is after her? all these people coming after her and she just snaps and becomes Ghostface and sees that it's her fate that she can't escape it. So she embraces it and becomes Ghostface. I wish I could describe to you how happy that would make me. I, it's like the ballsiest insane move. It would probably be executed insanely poorly, but I would give the biggest accolades to whoever wrote that and directed it and who approved that. That would be awesome. As long as it follows her as the protagonist, I think that'd be a good idea. Yeah. Um, but then again, I mean, it's just, it gets to the point, I mean, you were, when I, in your response to my initial thesis length criticism, uh, you said anything that you can talk about uh, with regard to this film uh, could apply to the horror genre as a whole. Uh, I think that's true. Um, and that, and for that reason, I, I don't like slasher films. I think slasher films are the, lowest of the horror uh horror genre and and i know that upsets some people i can feel the comments uh right now uh but uh yeah i that's why these films don't work for me if they work for you then great enjoy them i hope you i will never take away uh someone's enjoyment of a movie but for me the lowest the, the, slasher films don't work psychological horror some of the uh uh meta horror genre horror that we've talked about i've praised tons of films on this podcast um so all of those seem to work for me a lot more than a guy with a knife is going to try and kill some people usually women uh the end uh so that's yeah that's why these films just don't it doesn't work for me that's interesting uh, oddly enough my uh, my wife the only horror films she likes to watch are slashers she doesn't like the, the, she does not like the inanimate object shit. I don't know, like Chucky or the dolls coming alive. She doesn't like exorcist religious horror stuff. She doesn't like the familial horror shit that scares me, um, gory stuff, but she loves slasher films, loves them. We've been going through quite a few of them recently Been trying to really like pinpoint why that is, <laughs> why is it that uh, my female w uh, wife loves only slasher films? I find that very interesting. I, probably should run. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, but knowing, you know, sort of some of the things that you've been saying tonight, Jim, I'm, I'm going to pick her brain in maybe a different way and see if I can get some answers. Is it empowering to a certain extent? Is it, is it, um, is it angering? And that's it to some degree. And that's why she can put it in front of her. And it's very interesting. I don't know. She's probably just going to be like, I just yeah. like 
which is I, I would actually oh. be really curious. Uh, I mean, what how she responds to that? Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's I what she's I don't know. I I'm trying to go back and and see my own favorite horror films and see why I like those more than I like others. I mean, to some degree, The Shining's of us. It devolves into a slasher film at one point, at some point, and to that extent. But the most interesting things for me about The Shining are the first and second acts uh, before it really just becomes here's Johnny and and the will he kill them or will won't he kill them? Yeah. Uh, that's probably the worst part of the movie for me. The first two acts I really enjoy. Yeah, I mean that's um, familial horror to a certain extent. That's one of the right. yeah, that's one of the films I would peg as being Rosemary's Baby. Maybe if we're going back this far, yeah, Rosemary's Baby, Carrie to a certain extent. Um, but uh, yeah, those are the those are the horror films that do it for me. It's the psychological shit of expe expectation when it comes to family. Um, don't know if if there's anything like that in Halloween. I mean, Halloween's more, especially this this later one is um, distrust, PTSD, maybe some of that. They're distancing people close to you. If those are sorts of things that are hap happening in your life for whatever reason, say physical violence or assault or whatever, you can see why this recent film would be maybe somewhat damaging to some people, empowering to others. It's very interesting how horror films affect people differently. One of the things that bothers me, this may be, if it's too much of a, a segue outside of our Halloween discussion, let me know and I'll pull it back. But one of the things that's always interests me is when I talk to people and they say, I'm not scared of any horror film, like nothing scares me. And then when I define what it means to be scared and I, I'm like sort of a whore with it, like I'm really loose with it. I'm like, okay, I'm just gonna give you the more, most open fucking definition of what fear is. And they still are like, nah, nothing doesn't do it for me. I kind of feel like those people are actually the people who have the most shit going on in their lives and they're they're pulling it all in or something. You know what I mean? Like I, I've had a couple people that I've talked to. Maybe maybe it's people who don't think about themselves to a certain extent. They don't intro, like introspect and think about who they are as a person, what scares them, what what's virtuous about them. Like those conversations, if you're introspective enough, I feel like you're gonna know what does things to you in horror films. Um, Antonio is a great example. Like, I mean, his definition of fear even is very different than most people. His idea of what scares him isn't like, ah, I'm scared and I'm in a theater and I got to pull up the covers and I'm, his is, you know, it's three days later and why am I still thinking about this movie? It's still like somewhere in here. That's fear to him, right? There are people that I've talked to that just have none of that. And I don't know if, I mean, I don't want to insult those people, but to me, it seems like are, are there's, do we want to say that that sort of thing is is true of some people that maybe just nothing like the 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 anxieties reflected in horror films especially today in 2018 do no work in some people what do you guys think about that i'm sorry if that's like a giant yeah. jump of Halloween, but what do you think about that no the thing is is as you were talking i was uh, thinking well i'm i'm one of those guys i say that i don't get scared at movies and that's really it's true i don't experience the what I consider to be the emotion of fear. Um, but then as you were continuing to talk about it, <laughs> Ben, do you want to say that out loud, Ben? Go ahead. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, in, in the ch I'm, I'm going to say it if you're not. In the chat, one of our co-hosts said, what a plebe. Um, so uh, I'll leave you to figure out which one that one was. Uh, yeah, so I, I, so I don't, I don't, I don't experience the, what I consider to be the emotion of fear. I guess what I would ask back to you, not in a 
I don't want to be too much of a dick when I say this, but you might be using a rather sloppy version of the word fear. Um, I, can you can you talk about how you're a whore as in, in your words? Oh no, uh, whore as it comes I, to let me, fear. Let me be very clear for this live. Show. I, yes, please. The word I'm using. It, well, maybe I am a whore. Like, let me take a step back. I, there's nothing. I could be a whore. You never know. Anyway, um, so uh, no, I, I think the term is can mean different things for different people when we talk about horror films. So like my idea of fear, I'm scared when I watch a horror film and something is said, it doesn't have to be a murder. It could be a murder. It could be something in a horror film that um, produces some physical response in me where I get kind of a shiver. And I think about the concept being explored. So it tends to be more cerebral horror films. Um, shit, what's a good example? Like It Follows is one of my favorite horror films of all time. And some of the scariest scenes of It Follows are when the teenagers are reading Dostoevsky's The Idiot. And that contextualized within the movie, some of the things that they say, contextualized within a film where death is creeping up on them and following up on them and slowly but surely coming after them. That atmosphere mixed with that idea, a couple of the ideas that's explored when one of the kids quotes Dostoevsky, is really tough for me to handle. I mean, I have a particular religious apparatus that I came from that explains some of this. Um, I have a deconversion that explains some of this. I have, you know, I know myself well enough to know what's doing the work, but when I say fear, it's thinking about things that I don't like to think about. Let's maybe put it that way. That's kind of my idea, my idea of fear, is a film making me think about things that are icky, that I don't like to think about, that have existential weight Right, let's put it that way. I mean, there's a couple ways I could cut this. That's what I mean when I say fear. It's different for Antonio. Antonio, that's not his his idea of fear. His idea of fear is it's three days later, and for some reason that I'm going to explore, I'm still thinking about that particular scene in Sunshine, which isn't really even a horror film, right? So, yeah. Since, since you're bringing this up, Noah, can we talk about something? Because uh, yeah. there was something done in this movie, which is done in a lot of horror movies. Um, you know, it's done in more other John Carpenter movies. It was done most recently, I think, in Hereditary, uh, where they use the tool of having a scene in a classroom, and the the classroom and the teacher are talking about some sort of theme or some sort of you know, uh, uh, meaning, message, metaphor, whatever. Um, that is supposed to somehow resonate more broadly. And, you know, when I rewatched the original Halloween for this podcast, I caught that and I thought, is, is this the first movie that used that trope? I mean, I, 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 maybe it's not. I don't know if you guys can think of an earlier one. But it's an effective tool. Too. What's that? They talk about fate in that too. And that was what was yeah. interesting to me too. Yeah. Right. And we, and we have not talked about fate, so maybe we should. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think it's an interesting technique. It, it's perhaps overused. It, it is maybe a little heavy handed at this point just because it has become sort of somewhat cliche in some ways. Um, but, uh, but you know, I, 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 I noticed it a lot more flagrantly this time around, I think, than I often do perhaps. Well, yeah, I... Um, before we, I do want to talk about that. Um, before I do, I do want to go back to what you were talking about in your sort of quote unquote whorish definition of fear. Um, and that like, what was, if that's your definition of fear, then there's a ton of movies that scare me because there are a ton of movies that make me think for a while afterwards. And there are a ton of movies like 
Fucking Hannah and her sisters scares me in that case. Um, <laughs> like Annie Hall scares the living shit out of me. I will never be the same after. Yeah, so, so maybe, maybe we should be clear, right? It's not. I mean, yeah, there's tons of films where you think about the the, the stuff going on after. Maybe it should be a, a thinking about it and not being entirely comfortable with what you find when you think about it. You know, I mean, Joan is a great example of this. His and, horror films are hilarious. Right. Me. Well, he's got the lobster on. I mean, we yeah, talked about the, yeah, the lobster. But like, if you talk to Joan, I mean, go watch that podcast for anyone who hasn't seen it. Right. And yeah. Jonah was like scared shitless of the lobster. Like it was like my watching of it follows. I It was the most compelling podcast we've done. Cause I was like, I gotta get into your world, man. Like I <laughs> like what, you know, so, but yeah, I, 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 I that's why I called it a, a whorish definition of fear. It's very, Brought. Well, next up on the Deadly Analysis podcast, we talk about Annie Hall, <laughs> 1977's Best Picture, a romantic comedy about how you will never be loved. Um, I I don't remember who it was. Maybe, Jim, maybe you can help me with this one. But there, there is someone in the, in the critical theory uh, tradition that put forward what they referred to as the effective fallacy, which, uh, you know, in in short, is the idea that uh, uh, you know uh, art is defined in terms of the feelings that it engenders in you. Uh, and so, it, you know, and, and, and by calling it a fallacy, they're saying that's not the right way to think about art. Um, uh, and again, I'm not picking a side on this argument one way or the other, but, you know, it, I, I certainly can see someone saying and making a, can paste a case that I would consider, if not necessarily agree with, uh, that simply because a film scares you does not ergo mean it's horror. It's a uh, Wimsatt and Beardsley uh, new criticism. Yeah, that's the one, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I sort of, I don't know. I, in my, in the things that I've suggested for us to discuss, I've, I've taken sort of the market definition of horror, the, the films that are marketed as horror films, the films that perform as horror films, where they're, where the, and this is the intentional fallacy, I understand, but it seems like the intention of the filmmakers is to get people to, to be scared, to jump, to be fearful, to scream, to have. But I don't like that. I, I don't. I, I don't like that. I, I know don't, you don't. I, I actually hate it. I actually hate that. I, I know you do. Massively hate it. I mean, I the, the entire. But if I don't use that, we're talking about Annie Hall next week, bro. You know what? Let's load up Annie Hall and no, your seven reasons for no. But I mean, you know, <laughs> honestly, like to to me, um, I, the reason I don't like that it it, it assumes things about me. That may not be true. It, look at your, I, I, again, Joan is a great example. Or other podcasts, it's like none of the traditional rubric concepts of horror do it for him. They don't scare him. Most of the films we've talked about that are traditional horror don't do it. But what scares him is, is um, relational issues. I mean, they scare him and bother him and deeply disturb him. Um, and he's not the only person who feels that way, right? And so it, it, there's this whole other, so to me, I take a step back and I go, like, what are the things in life that irk you, that make you feel, uh, irks the wrong word, that that make you, um, that that produce anxiety in you? And let's look at films that have those. Um, they tend to be horror films, traditionally rubric horror films. Most of the ones we've talked about, we've had quite a few that are outside of those boundaries and they're still scary to certain people. So I like to start with the person. You know what I mean? I don't like to start with these conceptions and bring them and, and pigeonhole people into particular things because of, precisely because of, reasons like Jonah. I, I tend to somewhat fall into categories like that. I, I think familial horror is uh, getting gaining more gaining more speed recently with, with 
Hereditary and a lot of these other films that are coming out. But um, yeah, I like to start with the person. I guess that's why I kind of like fear is informative. The things that you're scared of, this is what we said in our very first podcast, right? Um, fear is informative and it's informative on an individual level, just like it is a collective societal level, but it's the individual level that I find the most interesting. It's why in this podcast, you know, we explore kind of each other, like I, not to sound too creepy. Uh, I get to explore you, Jim, uh, but not to, not, you know, like we kind of, these it's things. dark in here. Yeah. No, but, but that's the point, right? Like it's dark in there for everybody. It's just, we have different ways of showing that and talking about that and expressing that. And they come out in different ways. And it's not like these very distinct concepts in horror are the only ways that they work. They tend to be, I mean, they, I think reflect very rigid cultural anxieties, but not necessarily individual anxieties in the way that I think is, is fun to explore. So we, you know, we've had conversations about films that like Sunshine's a good example. It's a sci-fi film, but it's scary to me. It's, it's a horrifying film uh, about everything you doing being like you're, there's this one thing at the end that's waiting for you no matter what you do, right? That's one of the things we talked about. A couple of films have that, uh, that we've talked about. So yeah, I mean, I that I guess that's why I don't, I don't like that. I don't like sure. that concept. Maybe it's right. I mean, maybe in a larger level, it makes sense that we can categorize, shuffle things and move them in the right direction and it functionally works. But I, I just don't dig that. I, I wanna, dude, if you come on here and you go, look, here are seven reasons legitimately seven reasons that Barney is the scariest villain in all of horror, I will listen to you. If you're being authentic and you're telling me, I'm gonna have a lot to say because clearly Winnie the Pooh's the fucking monster. And, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, like, but I, you know, I wanna hear you. I, I this is, I, sure. there's something to be said, this again is somewhat Nietzschean, there's something to be said for listening to the madman you know, banging his head on the wall in the in the in this insane asylum. Like sometimes, sometimes we should pay, maybe listen to that person. Sometimes, right? So I I, I that's how I like to treat horror because I think horror is very informative. It's very it's it's a uh, it says a lot about a person, right? And uh, I think when you move up to the level of of uh, societally, I think that's when it gets rubriced a little better, right? Um, I don't know. I mean, like, how could we have this conversation about the nun or Annabelle? Maybe, maybe there's something there. Maybe there's some meat, but I feel like I got more out of lobster than I'd ever get out of the nun. You know, I mean, all of us, I mean, I don't know, maybe I could pull someone in who's like, I got whooped as a Catholic growing up. Here's why the nun's the scariest fucking film ever. I mean, I'll listen to that. I, I really would, you know? So anyway, I'm yeah, sorry. Me too. Me too. No, I think that's fair. Um, uh, yeah, and I think that's a really good sort of metric for for the podcast and and for interacting with other people about film. Um, do we want to talk about fate for a little bit and that conversation in the seventy eight classroom and all that? Yeah, yeah, Garrett's Garrett's onto something. I mean, I I so in um in Hereditary, I think I made that comment that it's 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 dawned on me that like like if there's a classroom scene, you should not pay attention to what the filmmaker wants you to look at, but listen, listen to the content of the of the teacher because it it tends to be a key for the entire film. It's that way and it follows. It's that way in uh, Hereditary, definitely in Hereditary, my God. Um, th there's there's something like that in Halloween. I think there, I mean, it'd be great to maybe make a list of this. You know what I mean? If someone out there is watching this, could make a list of those things, like classroom sequences, where there's something going on that informs the film in, in horror. I'd love to get a list of that. That's really interesting. So yeah, it, I, I don't know if Halloween is the first one. I'm not, um, I'm, I'm not as uh, well-versed in horror to maybe be able to answer that, but uh, it's probably the earliest one that I'm aware of too, Garrett. But yeah, it's an interesting thing to, to think about. 
So on the topic of fate, I mean, one way of interpreting Michael Myers, not so much in a Lovecraftian way, but even maybe just sort of in, in, in a more ancient way still, um, is just as the Grim Reaper. You know, he's just death and he's coming for us all sooner or later. We can glimpse him, glimpse him from a distance from time to time. Um, uh, you know, we, we get might get false scares, as it were, uh, but eventually sooner or later, uh, death is coming for you. And of course, there's nothing you can do to beat him. You can shoot him. You can stab him. You can do whatever you want. You can, uh, but he's he's going to just get back up and he's going to keep coming after you. Um, so if you know, that's that's maybe a kind of a superficial analysis in some ways, but it would certainly fit with that theme of fate. I wouldn't really consider that superficial, honestly. Um, I think I might have mentioned that uh, in, in a previous podcast, some some other episode, but I, I do think that happens to be perhaps the root of all fear. You know, I mean, when you think about where fear comes from, from a love evolutionary perspective, I don't know, like evolutionary psychology, whatever, hocus pocus. But when you think about fear, I, I think it's it's kind of easy to draw that distinction because where you see fear arising really as a species is kind of like that knowledge that something might happen to you. you. You might be damaged as a person and that your life is eventually going to end. Um, and all other fear, I think, sort of like grows out of that. So if you do start from that symbol, you know, I think Michael Myers does a really good good job of kind of like portraying that for all of the reasons that we've discussed so far, because he is that kind of like blank-faced enigma, um, seemingly unstoppable, no motive, um, no rhyme or reason to, you know, to, to go ahead and go back there for a second. I know we, we've talked about that at length, but just to characterize him in that way, I think it really does hook into that quite nicely. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you could do that with many other films as well. It's just that this film in particular, I think, intends to show that in a very archetypal kind of way. Yeah, it's like I said at the beginning, it's more pure. That's what I meant when I say that Michael Myers as a villain is more pure. It's more archetypal. It's, he, he's a walking shark in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? It's like he's he uh, it's 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 the reminder of the void, right? It's the reminder of the, the faceless death, like a lot of horror. At the end of the day, you're right. It comes down to the the ending, the snuffing out of your existence. But it also focuses a lot on how that happens, how that happens, how violent it is, what way you go. Um, Michael, some of the I mean, the movies that scare me the most, right? Um, and and I, you, maybe some of your schema too is with, with Seven Seal is the reflection of death, right? The the conceptualization of the of the finality of human experience. Um, that is. Caught. I mean, Michael Myers in a lot of ways is like death in the Seventh Seal. I mean, he it, it, a much less verbose version of him. Um, but I mean, there there is a connection there, right? It's that it's that looking at the thing, that personification of the void, right? That is that is uh, a reminder. And you're right, a lot of horror films have that, but it's it's uh, more muddied. It's more um, it's more mud blooded. It's more there's there's a there's a lot more other stuff going on there. Whereas with Myers you just kind of have to look at it in the face, you know? And I, I like that. Um, I don't know. I think the removal of that motivation makes him different from like Jason or like a Freddy or something. And they do kill you. They end your existence and you die much like the kaching you, I mean, the kaching you get from Michael Myers is the kaching you get from Jason. But when I get the kaching from Michael Myers, I feel like I have to look at something more fundamental and I have to look at the face of something that scares me more. Do you know what I mean? Because it's it's an enigma, it's inexplicable. It's that reminder of what's there at the end of things. You know, I, I don't know. Um, I hope that makes sense. But yeah, I, I I think you could apply this across most all most horror films. Sure. 
what was it, Garrett? You had um, it was the quote from Stephen King, I think, how he described Michael Myers. It wasn't the nameless um, monster with no. Uh, how, how did he describe monster with no name, monster with no face, or the beast? Oh, you're talking about uh, uh, from Dance Macabre. Yeah. Oh God damn! What was his phrase? Yeah. Um, it's not the beast with no face. Um, something like that. Yeah, not the beast, but definitely with no face. There's the the man with no face, something like that. Yeah. Uh, again, I'm sorry, I'm blank, and I can't remember exactly yeah. what the. Yeah. However, it was it was a, it was a great way to describe uh, to describe Myers. You know, I, I he walks. That's the other thing that I love. Well, Jason walks, but fuck Jason. Uh, yeah. I mean, he he walks. That's the other thing that scares me. It's it's, it's if he, if Michael Myers would have ran, I don't think I'd like Halloween. Just gonna throw that out there. Um, anyway, so yeah, I don't know where we're going from this, but um, I don't know. There there is a, a kind of fundamentality to Myers that I think is is um, isolated to him alone. Maybe it has to do with the lack of motivation, but. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Scares me to death. Well, you, yeah. I mean, you posited at the beginning of this podcast that Michael Myers was the best slasher. And as much as I don't like, I've made my feelings clear on this film. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I actually agree with you that Michael Myers better than Jason, better than Freddie, better than, uh, the, the doll Chucky, uh, better than all of those other slashers that sort of percolated 80s horror. Um, so yeah, I mean, I can agree with that much. And I think the the image of Michael Myers is probably, uh, is scarier than the burnt face of Freddy or the creepy doll of Chucky. Uh, and I think that Jason is kind of just ripping off Michael Myers. That's the hockey mask and the William Shatner mask. Uh, those are very similar, but the, uh, the Captain Kirk mask is probably, uh, probably better in its facelessness, especially in the eyes. So, yeah. One, one of the things I want to explore at some point, we've never had the opportunity to do it in this podcast because no one has selected a film, I think, that uh, explores this is like the doll, like the inanimate object thing, like what that's about. I, I've never, I haven't given that do much. want to do Annabelle? Uh, no. <laughs> no. No. I, if we were going to peg a candidate for that, I'd probably give it like the first child's play. I don't know. Gary, you want to say something? Yeah. You guys may not have seen this one, but there's a film called Trilogy of Terror. No? I have not seen that. Yeah, okay. It's, it's at the title suggests, you know, it's an anthology piece, you know, two, like three half hour long shorts. And one of them is, it's, it's kind of got a cult following. Um, I can't actually remember the name of it, but it's the final one in the original one. It's about, it's based on a Richard Matheson short story. And the Matheson short story actually is pretty good. The, movie version of the story is like camp over the top ridiculous you know it's there is something kind of scary about it but again it's, it's it, they're very consciously going for you know th this sort of preposterous over the top scary doll kind of stuff and it's actually quite funny because of it i got it so has there ever been a doll film that's been scary to any of you guys I mean, I guess as a kid, Chucky kind of scared the fuck out of me. I, I talked about this before in a previous podcast. I actually got kicked out of a theater with my dad because I watched Chucky when I was six. So uh, it was. Is there a Twilight Zone episode with a doll? I think I remember uh, that being pretty creepy. Um, and then the I. The ventriloquist, right? Yes, I think so. Yeah, that I remember that being pretty creepy. Um, I think, did Hitchcock ever do a doll? I think. For some reason, I remember a black and white doll that was kind of all right. Well, that was creepy, rather than actually scary. But yeah, there's, there's. I think there was a, 
I could be wrong about the Hitchcock one, but I'm almost positive there was a Twilight Zone one. Yeah, Twilight Zone, Talkie Tina. Um, yeah, it's where the little girl's yeah. doll was like, you better be nice to me. And that, 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 yes. that, that's actually a good one, yeah. That was creeptastic. That was pretty good, yeah. Question. Should we? Yeah. Do the, do the replicants in Blade Runner count as dolls? <laughs> I'm handing this one to Garrett, the <laughs> philosopher. Go. No. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I see why you go there, and obviously there's a sense in which the, the connection is, is is there, but no, it's not dolls in the relevant sense, you know, for the, from what we're, the kind of thing we're getting at, so. Yeah, I mean, they are objects that became, okay, wait, I'm not. No, gonna... they're AI, like those yeah, are. AI's, AI's objects, too. Yeah. Okay. yeah for... That's, they're robots. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, um. I, I want to explore that at some point. One of us has to add a, a, a some sort of, see, the problem is all of those tend to be fairly dumb or films. I don't know. I, I just got done watching the original Child's Play and I kind of dug it again. So maybe I'll add it just to kind of go over Because one of the things that's always been curious to me is what that's about. Like we've talked about the fear of zombies and sort of what's doing the work there. We've talked about the slasher, what's going on there. Um, we've talked quite a bit about sci-fi fears, fear of the unknown, then horizon, but like, what the fuck is up with the idea that an inanimate object comes to life and wants to harm you? That is so strange to me. I don't know if it's a particularly modern thing. Like, is there a particular period in time? Like, has this ever been something that scared people before 1900? I mean, like in literature, in literature. I mean, obviously this fear goes back, I would imagine, quite a ways. But, like, when did this become the big thing? You know what I mean? I don't know. Like when did this become a fear as, of technology? Like I think it's a, a an underlying um, uh, unease with technical creations and and imbuing them with with meaning in life. I think that's a that's what I see as the basis of it. I don't know whether that's uh, that's something that other an interpretation others would share. But go ahead, Garrett. Yeah, no, I I I think it's deeper than technology. I mean, again, I we, I don't know about where it first shows up in literature. That is an interesting question. But sort of in terms of human psychology, I mean, you know, an anthropology. I mean, the you know fetish dolls is something that goes all the way back to prehistory, and and you know people have always you know it seems cast you know intentionality and mindfulness and responsibility and power onto to, to fetish dolls you know the most mo modern incarnation probably something like a voodoo doll or something like that so so this is something anthropologically is very very old in our in our race uh, so antonio is actually in our chat one of our co-hosts and he said that his uh, his wife mary points out that woodcutter murderer archetype that dates back pretty far back in folk tales interesting yeah i mean i'm not sure I, if this I'm not, I'm not sure if this ties in, but I was actually going to mention, um, I think uh, The Adventures of Pinocchio from 1883, the original story there might be the first time that I can pay sort of like a, a human-like sentience being applied directly to something that you would actually consider like a doll, you know? It's not necessarily horror, but maybe maybe horrifying in the original fairy tale sense. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like I wanna initially, like my 30 second initial sort of thought about it is like it's a, it's a fear of um, like, uh, like uh, not, on, um, like the rules being broken, like not understanding, right? Like when we think of inanimate objects and we think of dolls, there are particular rules about that thing. It doesn't move, it doesn't talk, it doesn't do this. We move it, we instantiate our reality onto it. 
if that happens without us, there's a degree of power that's removed for us and understanding that we lose something that's lost there. It's basically saying the universe is way more complex than we understand it. What the fuck? How is this? Ha there's a large degree of how is this happening in every inanimate, in every doll film. One of the first things they explore is how, why, what's, how did this get here? How is Charles Lee Ray in that body? of the doll, right? How did Annabelle fucking get created? Well, we now have an entire film dedicated to Annabelle creation, right? So it's, it's obviously one of the most important things that's almost always explored is the why. The why question is almost always explored in that. I mean, as far as I know. So I, I feel I like mean, that's, yeah. It's the same question that we were asking our, earlier this evening. Why mm -hmm. is Michael Myers killing people? Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, I think that is connected. It's our, I, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm just describing modern concept of horror, concepts of horror. The fact that we don't understand, I mean, that is horror, right? Like that's right. art, yeah. I mean, maybe it goes back to something more fundamental. Um, that's interesting. I should add a film like that. I'll try to find one that does it justice. I don't want to be talking about Child's Play 3 or like The Bride of Chucky and shit up in this podcast, but um, we should think of maybe explore, maybe we'll just explore that as kind of an issue as opposed to a film. You know what I mean? I don't know. It's really bugging me. It's been one of the things that I don't understand. I would kind of like us to do a film that we all agree is bad. That way, at least that way, I know that I'm not the only one who's hating it. Uh, that would be fantastic if we could do Child's Play 3 and then just all agree previously, we're going to spend two hours shitting on the movie. That would be fantastic. <laughs> and then the uh, the comment hate would be uh, we would be less uh, more widespread. Um, so uh, do, speaking of hate, do we should we wrap up and I can. Uh, I can do another thesis about why I'm not. Jim is ready. Jim is ready to spew more hate. Uh, so that is typically when we end things. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how do we? So how do we want to do this? I mean, I. I can go first, and then I can yeah. get the asshole out of the way. Yeah, I mean, do we want to? I hate. I gotta even hate the idea of scoring the original Halloween because I feel like that's blasphemy. I don't no, know I'm, I'm ready. ready. Okay. Yeah, you're ready. <laughs> Jesus. All right. Uh, yeah. Why don't we start with? Let's start with Jim. Go. Jim. I think it's. I think that's a good idea, and then. Do we it. Can, uh, we can we can tell people like when where to skip ahead. I think uh, you know I'll only go for about two minutes. So if you want to skip ahead two minutes, then you can uh, go to the next person. Um, I'll try and I'll try and keep it under two. Uh, yeah. So I kind of made it clear that I'm not a fan of the original. Um, I've said before on a podcast that it is uh, that the original is a suburban real estate video with creepy music. Um, that none of the uh, none of the scares really get me, um, and I think that there is some serious problems as it relates to its uh, its feminist sensibilities. Um, that said, that music is damn creepy, and uh, I think that it, it was one of the early uses of Steadicam. Um, technically, for a three hundred thousand dollar budget, which I believe the the original had. $300,000 budget. They made a, a, a film. Um, and it, it stood the test of time. And there are a lot of people, it certainly has its lot of, uh, its fans. Um, I'm not one of them. It's okay. Uh, same thing with the, uh, the 2018 version. Um, I found a lot of the same types of problems, um, in the original and with, uh, the 2018 version. Um, that those problems, uh, as much as there were some some sort of interesting gender reversals, 
uh, where the the female characters became the aggressors. I thought that was an interesting choice, turning Laurie Strode into a Sarah Connor character. Thought that was an interesting choice, but overall, I don't think the film worked uh, as a whole. I think it sort of returned to the 80s morality plays. And in many ways, Halloween 2018 is a meta Halloween film. We have a five minute sequence where they're basically talking about the sequels. Uh, they they referenced didn't wasn't uh, Michael Myers supposed to be Laurie Strode's brother? And then uh, another character says, "No, that's just a myth." Well, you spent an entire fucking movie talking about how Michael Myers was once Laurie Strode's brother. So uh, that those those were elements that really didn't work for me. A lot of the scares don't work for me. I don't think the slasher genre works for me. And so uh, so this is just not a film that 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 works for me. Um, I give them both one and a half stars. Um, I think there are, there's a cool one shot in the second one where I was like, technically, well done. Bad movie, though. Uh, so it, it didn't work for me. Um, and uh, that is that is this is why so. this is why I love Jim. Jim has the balls to give the original Halloween one and a half stars. And he gave his reasons why. And I totally fucking dig that. That is that is cool, and I just want to say, Jim. Um, yes, sir. Try Tom Holland's. Uh, well, try Hush. Have you ever seen Hush on Netflix? Um, that's the same director as the uh, the, the current uh, 2018 Halloween. It's also uh, it's also slasher. Okay. Yeah, right. and uh, I think given your criticisms, you may enjoy that one a little more. So okay. I, I I offer it to you. Yeah, I I just thought of that when you were talking. Same director, and maybe a slasher that you like, knowing what I know. So anyway. Anyway, ball, yeah, cool. Yeah, ball, balls of brass, my friend. Balls of brass. Um, I, I submit myself to the commentate. <laughs> <laughs> I am not like Ghostbusters too. I do not feed on your hate, but I will accept it. What about the rest of you guys? What did you guys think? Okay, I guess I'll go next. Um, uh, yeah, now the original had a profound impact on me when I was a kid growing up, you know, it, 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 I grew up with eighties horror films and, and that one hit me hard. Um, I mean, I've already co uh, complimented the, the soundtrack. There's the one shot, one of my favorite shots in all of horror where Laurie Strode is, thinks she's just killed Michael Myers and she's crying in the doorway and in the background, Michael Myers just sits up. And it's silent for when he sits up, and that 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 scene will always always get a rise out of me. Um, so there's you know there's a long emotional uh, uh, coming of age uh, story for myself in in the original Halloween. So yeah, four and a half out of five stars. Uh, it's it's a classic and rightly so, in my opinion. Um, for the the remake, eh, uh, I. Two out of five, you know, two and a half, maybe it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's not, again, you know, I said it before, I'll say it again, given that you're going to make it, it's probably about as good as it could be, but why make it? There's just, you know, money is not a good enough reason for me, Jim. Again, it's, it's an explanation. It's not a justification. Uh, so I don't, uh, uh, I'm, I'm disappointed and it's, you know, I didn't hate it, but definitely wasn't all that excited about it. So meh. But uh, no, I think you're wrong. I don't think you know, the, the the director of this one of this Hollywood the, the remake is David Gordon Green. I don't. I'm looking at his IMDb page. I don't. Think is, that right? is that right? Is that right? I may be wrong. He, yeah, he, someone else directed Hush. Okay. That was a good movie. But yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I I thought that was the same director. I, I still for you, Garrett. I'm sorry for Jim. I definitely would recommend it. I I think that you'd probably get more out of it. But yeah, my apologies. This is a different director. Cool. 
Uh, ben, do you want to go, or I can I can go. Whatever you want. No, I'll go ahead and take this one. Um, <clears throat> all right. So I think I have uh, I view these films in a little bit more positive of a light. Um, you know, the original one I do think is a little bit better. And the reason I like both movies, as I alluded to before, is that they kind of like they hint at something that I think is really quite interesting. You know, as you know, as I said, like as a culture or as a family, there are themes that people seem to doubt that there's anything to be afraid of in the world. There's this sort of like death of the awareness of fear. Um, but then we are reminded once again, that there are things to be afraid of. We're reminded what fear is and what fear feels like. Um, and I think that's really cool to kind of like address that in a way in the film. I don't necessarily know if that was intended, but that seems to be like my biggest takeaway for both of them. However, I do think they were good in, in different ways, sort of like beyond that underlying foundation. The first one I really liked just because of the tension that they're able to build. Um, we did talk about that a little bit too. I think as as a focus for a movie, um, just having those elements there where they, it, it's a slasher film, but they don't really seem to rely on that too much. It's not really a gory film. It's, it's not about the blood and guts. And generally, I really do dislike slasher films for that reason. That kind of stuff doesn't impress me. It's not scary to me. Um, I do think that sort of like speaks to the broader uh, category of horror and like what generally is considered a horror film is sort of defined by, you know, that kind of like that, that immediate sort of visceral gore. I'm really glad that they didn't seem to rely on that too much, or at least not to me. It was really all about the tension. And so for that reason that they seem to do that quite well, especially for the time period, um, I, I want to give the original um, an eight, maybe an 8.25. Um, and the reason that I really liked the second one, even though it's not quite as good, was because they they sort of like take that, and it's not really about the tension. Obviously, they do some humorous moments. They they hang a lantern on some things. It is sort of like a meta film. It's not really supposed to be a sequel. Um, I think it's categorized as kind of like a soft reboot. And so I can sort of forgive some of the continuity errors that I see. I do appreciate when they have overlaps and they make homage to the original film. But I think that's you know I I do think that's kind of what they were going for. It's sort of like an homage. It's a soft reboot. It's supposed to call back to the original film, but not necessarily supposed to be a direct sequel. So I can forgive some of the things that I don't like about it. Um, what I do really like about it, however, as I mentioned before, again, is kind of like the Nietzschean elements that you can really dig into. It seems to be the story of trauma that spans generations. It seems to be the story of a victim fighting a monster so long that they themselves become a monster and how they pass that on to their children especially as that pertains to women. Um, and so I just, I, I do think there's a lot of really cool stuff about this film that, that makes it quite strong. I don't necessarily know if it's as good as a horror film as the original, even though it is quite good, I think. Um, and so for that reason, I would give, drop it maybe about a point lower and give it like a seven or a 7.25, somewhere around there. Yeah, I think I probably would peg myself agreeing with with all three of you guys, the, the person I agree with probably the most is Ben. I mean, I I, I think that well. So I, I said a lot of what I love about the original Halloween in my intro, but you know, um, look, the scariest scene in Halloween isn't Michael slashing people. It's not. I know Garrett has that iconic scene where he stands up. By the way, Garrett, um, there's a YouTube video of someone who actually filmed, like, took a big camera into a theater in 1978 and filmed the audience's reaction of that scene. I'll see if I can find it and send it to you on YouTube. Um, but it's, you can't even hear the movie. People are screaming so loud. It's really, it reminded me of that when you said that. But even for me, that scene isn't, like, the scariest scene in Halloween. The scariest scene is Dr. Loomis saying, I, I've done everything I can as a psychologist. I've dedicated my life to this, and I have studied this person, and this is something else. This is beyond 
this is pu a purity, like a pure evil, something that's beyond. And that sort of glimpse into the other side is the that that cra cracking open of the door into something other is um, is what scares me so much about Halloween. I mean, the original Halloween to me is probably, in my mind, probably the best horror film ever made. I I, I think um, I'd give it a nine and a half at minimum, a nine and a half and minimum out of ten. I. I it's iconic in every way. The music is unbelievable. It's the highest grossing independent film ever made, I believe. Jim can correct me on that if I'm wrong. But I believe it's the highest gross, uh, the, the most successful independent horror film ever made. Is there something else? Blair Witch Project. Blair Witch Project beat Halloween? God, well, I'm ready to end my existence. Um, I think so. I need to check inflation adjusted numbers though. Yeah, um, let me know. I'd be curious. I'd yeah, the, there's certainly been higher grocers that are independent films um, since then, but I don't know about inflation adjusted numbers. So um, if we stall for five minutes, I can probably <laughs> figure that out yeah. or, uh, or I might just, uh, we'll correct it. It's yeah, no, no, we can correct it, tack yeah. it on again. If, I, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'm mean, uh, wrong, wrong about the hush director. So I got, I got, a, I got a penchant for some of these, but yeah, no, I, you know, it, it, it transcended, I think to me, um, modern rubrics of horror in a way that sort of gave me a more overt peek into, gave us a more overt peek into the other sort of the, the, the physical instantiation of the idea of um, death, of, of just the purity of it, you know, in a person. Um, and it did it well, the original. I mean, it did it so well, it's never left me. I, like I said, I watched the film a, a week and a half ago and I was probably more scared then than I was when I watched it the first time. It really just got to me again. I like that, you know? Maybe I'm just a little bitch and I get scared really easily, but that makes life more interesting. I mean, I like that. I like being scared, you know? I I would rather be that person as opposed to the person that I talked about earlier that just says, no, nah, no, nah, scary films don't do it for me. I'm not scared of anything. Like, bullshit, you know? So anyway, uh, nine and a half out of 10. Uh, the recent one, probably two and a half out of five. What do we want to say? I don't know, like fucking maybe five or six out of 10. It. It's good. It's better than most horror films that come out today. But how do you how do you really do a successful sequel to Halloween? That's so hard. I mean, how just that that project alone seems in, insanely daunting, given the fine line that's sort of treaded in um, in the first film in the way I've described what scares me. Right. So from my perspective, what scares me, you have to do a really good job of giving the audience enough to instantiate a person with the the void voidiness that you get in Michael Myers, that otherness. And that's hard to do, man. Better than most horror films, better than the, any of the Conjuring series, better than The Nun. I mean, there's ton, it, most horror films are not as good, I think, recent ones as um, as this recent uh, Halloween film, I, I, I would argue. Um, so I like the idea that it gave the final girl a voice. It's asked what happens after the traumatic experience happens and she's the last one left. Don't particularly like the answer. I mean, maybe that's the point. I don't know. Um, wish wish that would have been done a with a little more um, oomph. I wish I would have seen a little more Laurie Strode in the sequel. I wish that would have been explored a little more. Didn't like the comedy uh, in it. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I to me, Halloween is, how do you beat Halloween, man? I, I don't know. And I, I say that as someone who always shits on nostalgia. I mean, that's my biggest gripe is thinking that a film is good because it's nostalgic and it's iconic or something. And Halloween is not like that for me. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, the music. I got God Almighty the music. I mean, everyone knows the music. Um, by the way, I think John Carpenter's grandson actually helped him do the music in the second one, which was kind of a weird funk. So if you look at the credits um, in the music section, it actually has his grandson helping 
doing the kind of the weird spin that Garrett was talking about. Like it sounds a little like the original Halloween theme, but something's like there's some changes to it. So I think that was his grandson that helped him do that, which is kind of cool. Um, yeah. So uh, that's that's my thought. I mean, Halloween. My God, what a fucking amazing film. Um, so join us in two weeks. We're doing uh, we're doing Suspiria, the Dario Argento uh, seven. 77, Jim, somebody, what, what year did Suspiria come out? 77, I think. Everyone's looking at me. God, I'm not the only one who doesn't know something. I feel good. I feel good. I think it was 77, but we're doing, um, the yeah, 77. cool. So we're doing the original. Oh, sorry. I was, I was researching box office numbers. Yeah. Suspiria 77. Um, I, I can update the box office. Yes. Question. Go. Go. Um, so the, at number 22 domestic gross, um, the graduate, comes from a studio that I've never heard of called Avco Embassy, and that grossed, uh, it's it's adjusted for inflation gross is 782 million. So I don't know if that answers the question, but um, I can keep looking. So there's that. Uh, but Halloween isn't in the in the top. 50 i don't see halloween uh for adjusted for inflation grosses blair witch project had a sixty thousand dollar budget yeah it's one it was one fifth of what halloween was and it was made 20 years later and it made 250 million dollars i mean just when you look at a uh, 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 return on investment there's simply no way halloween is, is beating I didn't halloween make 330 on a three hundred thousand dollar in 78 I thought that's what the numbers were. We we need to post this on. This gives me something. No, it yeah. made thirty million. It made thirty million in seventy eight. No, no, in seventy eight. But I mean, overall, I think the film. So I read an article that said it's like three hundred and something million. Let's 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 find this yeah. out. I'm gonna okay. post it on social media. I'm gonna post this on our social media just to kind of get the the final uh, the final adjustment. But um, I guess if, the point would be nobody can argue that it wasn't one of the most successful independent horror films ever made. I'll slightly change my verbiage just to make it uh, work, but yeah. Um, Sorry, yeah. Well, so, I got us down a rabbit hole, but yes, yeah, Suspiria in 1977. Yeah, so we're doing that uh, versus the new one. New one, I, I don't, have you guys seen the new one yet? No? Okay, I haven't either. Not um, here. Yeah, it's got like a 70 something on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, be interesting to compare the two. I did not, did not like the original Suspiria, so we'll, I, I may be the gym of the Suspiria uh, episode. We'll see, I, I actually actively can't stand it. So look, this will be kind of interesting. Um, so yeah, two weeks, uh, two more Sundays from now, we will be doing Suspiria. Uh, I'm hoping to get the last few podcasts that we've done on iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, we have our MP3s of all of our podcasts on there up until Train to Busan. Um, so check those out if you haven't. We mentioned some, actually there were some uh, films uh, in the chat tonight, like The Witch, um, It Follows, Hereditary that people were talking about. We have uh, episodes for all those. So check out our YouTube channel. If you have an iPhone, go to iTunes. You can download our episodes on those um, and watch the watch the video segments on those. Um, if you disagree with anything we said, post in the comments. Uh, send Jim your hate. That's I love. Oh, let's not do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Only Jim. Uh, if you if if you if you have anything negative to say to me, it will be instantly deleted. But Jim, send to him directly. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, thank you. Guys. Thank you guys for watching. Yeah, go. Were you gonna say something? Oh, did you want to do Jim and Garrett uh, real quick? Okay, Jim and uh, we have another podcast, our sister podcast, Jim and Garrett at the movies, is on Tuesday. Uh, we will be talking about Jonah Hill's mid '90s, Dazed and Confused, and the death of Filmstruck. 
so that's this Tuesday. And then tune in next week for, or two weeks from now for Suspiria. <laughs> we have a comment that says, poor Jim. He dresses so nice and so, he's so polite too. Yeah, that's, that's what he wants you to think, guys. That's what he wants you to think. Uh, you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, two weeks, Suspiria. Um, after that, I think we're doing Peeping Tom. That's going to be a Jonah film, which would be interesting. Uh, he tends to be outside, like as we discussed tonight, sort of outside sort of traditional uh, the rubrics of horror that we've been talking about. So we'll do Suspiria in two weeks, two weeks after that, Peeping Tom. And then after that, I'm not entirely sure. We don't have anything on the schedule. I'm tempted to go down the road of Black Mirror, like specifically to do a couple months on Black Mirror episodes. So we'll see if that happens. Um, but hey, thanks for the comments tonight. It was great discussing this film. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, send us a comment, a message. If you have any films that you think would be good uh, based off some of the things we said tonight, shoot us a message. Let us know in the comment section um, and we'll see you guys in two weeks for Suspiria.